Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. Here on APT, we've been talking about fandom, and we've talked about cults in the past. So today, we are inviting you to come up to the lab and see what's on the slab. Because it's only fitting that we dive into cult films today. Well, how about that? Today marks our second discussion in this year's Art Halloween series, and today we are diving into Halloween culty and campy classics. What makes a film a cult classic, and how some of the most cherished haunted films have a certain campiness about them? From Rocky Horror to Jennifer's Body, we don't want to leave you in anticipation. So let's art pop talk. Yo, yo, yo. Howdy, howdy. Ooh, howdy, howdy. I like that. (laughs) I had a colleague who used to always send his emails howdy. (laughs) I want to start doing that. Yeah, I thought it was cute. I should start doing that up in Boston because I feel like that would really throw people off. Ooh, do it. Yeah. (laughs) That would be so funny. Keep the misconception of the Midwest alive. No, totally. I already feel like I got like a little bit of an interaction with that because there were some amazing, like very nice people that we met uh, whenever we were moving in. But they were like, you're from Oklahoma, right? And like, (laughs) I was like, here we go. Here we go. And they were like, so are you from like, the city (laughs) and I was like "Mm, yeah from Oklahoma City and um, actually fun fact that Andrew and I learned which I'm very glad that I have in my back pocket now is that Oklahoma City and Boston roughly have the same population size like it's it's Hmm. very close in population so I kind of like feel like I can whip that out but I I feel as though I should start using howdy (laughs) in all of my greetings Yeah, I think you should do it. I think that's hysterical. The last interaction I had like that, which is probably truthfully one of the last times I just was able to interact with human beings outside of my close circle, you know, pre-COVID. But it was Christmas 2019, and we were staying in that... Oh my God, was that Christmas? When did we go to New York and we stayed in that Airbnb in Soho and our Airbnb like person like she like was there and she was yeah. renting out her roommate's room I think that was like was, two years ago or I mean like years? like 2018 that was like yeah I think it was 2018 Christmas not 2019 because yeah. then we stayed in that like weird hostel 2019 but anyways yeah our Airbnb host was super nice but she was like oh my gosh like you guys should go see like a drag show. Have you ever been to a drag show? Like, do you know oh what drag God. is? And I was like, Shut bitch, the fuck please. Up. <laughs> oh my gosh, you guys should go see a drag show. And I'm like, really? What may that be, pray? Tell. What is drag? <laughs> it was just funny. Like, have you guys ever been to a bar before? Like, a gay bar? Wow, you should go here. And I was like, cool 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 i i always wanted to do something with that tiktok audio about the cows it's like it's a cow farm there's gotta be cows outside (laughs) i feel like i should i should talk like that when i get to boston it's cow farm Ooh, 
Oh, man. That's good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when you laugh excessively at your own jokes. (laughs) She just keeps going, folks. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's so funny. Anyway, (laughs) how's your month of Art Louween going so far? It's good. You know, I had some assignments that I also had to accomplish for this episode. Had to watch some uh, Halloween movies that I had never seen before. And then I really also just felt like watching some of the classics. So I started watching Rocky Horror last night. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm halfway through and I'll pick it back up. But V-Ben hasn't seen Rocky Horror, so I've been taking him through some of the the good movies he hasn't seen beetlejuice yet so that is on our list yeah so even though this was not really a super scary movie i didn't want to watch jennifer's body by myself i just don't enjoy watching any scary movie by myself i think as we'll talk about it i think it's a very social thing but anyways i made theban watch jennifer's body with me and we'll get into that later but i had some thoughts that's good. I I am like saving up all of my Halloween movies because I'm moving to Boston the last week of October and like I don't know, I just want to watch like Halloween movies with Andrew. Mm-hmm. But this weekend I might watch a few with Juliana. Um we'll see. I really want to start watching some, but I just haven't yet. Also, I was like, even though, as we'll get into, you're totally right about Jennifer's body, but I did have to watch it by myself. And honestly, I was scared. (laughs) I just don't like being surprised. (laughs) Well, that is not the field for you. It is not. So I, I need some, I just need another body there. Just another human being. He fell asleep and it didn't even matter. Like I just needed like. I don't know, the idea of him to be there. (laughs) Sure. All right, well, are we ready for a little art news? Now, this isn't necessarily like a huge art news story for you today. It was a little dry in the art news world this week, perhaps. But Gianna and I have um, some, you know, idea wheels turning in the back of our heads and something that we've been thinking about pairs along well with this kind of art news story that may be, you know, upcoming. And um, it's actually about the new series, Dope Sick, which will be coming out on Hulu. The show adapts Beth Macy's investigative bestseller about the cause of the opioid epidemic and specifically the role that the family-run Purdue Pharma company had. Um, And then the chairman, Richard Sackler, what role he played in getting America quote-unquote hooked on Oxycontin. Pharma execs and sales rep insisted that the painkiller was both non-addictive and long-lasting. So, Gianna, I cannot remember if we've talked about this before in APT. I really think that we have, um, like back in the day. Also, I may have talked about it in relation to my thesis because a member of the Sackler family, Elizabeth, um, though not actually involved in the pharmaceutical company, founded the Sackler Center for Feminist Art at the Brooklyn Museum. And then artist Nan Golden has been addressing the Sackler name in relation to museums and educational institutions in her PAIN, P-A-I-N organization, founded in 2017. 
Payne addresses the crisis of the ongoing drug war by targeting the pharmaceutical companies that have profited off the addictions and the deaths of half a million Americans. They say, quote, we are not anti-opioid, we are anti-big pharma. They write that, quote, our first focus was on the toxic philanthropy of the billionaire Sackler family who ignited the opioid overdose epidemic with their blockbuster drug OxyContin. We've exposed the institutions and have been complicit by accepting their donations for years. And through direct action, we've successfully pushed many museums and universities to refuse Sackler funding and cut ties with the family. Most recently, along with other advocates, we formed the Oxy Justice Coalition to demand accountability for the Sacklers in bankruptcy court and follow them to Congress. So this series premieres on Hulu this week on October 13th, and within it, it does seem like there's some hints of, you know, museums in the trailers. So we'll see what attachments we get to that and how kind of museums function within the show and then again if this sparks a conversation of museums addressing their backers you know IRL so yeah I uh yeah I feel like I don't really have any major thoughts on this one to be honest this is not a Hulu ad but (laughs) we both saw the trailer and we were like oh yeah like we should watch that and we made that association if you did talk about the Sacklers, it was definitely like way back in the day, yeah. APT, your situation. So it's okay if you guys are like, these bitches not talk about this or am I crazy? So as riveting as my commentary is on this art news story, I feel as though I might be ready to get into today's discussion. For today's Art Pop Talk... We're talking about super underground things you probably never heard of them mostly films they're totally not in the norm beetlejuice rocky horror fallout boy anything from a24 (laughs) but in all spookiness we are transitioning from our kitsch and cutesy discussion of halloween to camp and cult when it comes to classic horror films why do many of our cherished halloween movies possess campy aesthetics and plots And why are a lot of these films considered to be cult classics, a genre that could be seen as controversial or low budget, but kept alive by hardcore fans? All right. I'm very excited. Gianna, do you want to start us off with a little cult energy and history? (laughs) So similar to how we talked about kitsch being hard to explain or encapsulate because it takes shapes in a variety of different garish ways, the development of cult to where it is now plays into nostalgia. It can exist as a historical marker or super intense passion, trend, or a fad. But because it can exist differently to different people, that is part of the reason why cult films call for critical thinking. As films, cults or not, are visual works, we can first think critically about cult classics in terms of aesthetics. How are they set about differently from blockbuster or mainstream films? And Bianca will take us through the camp factor that sets horror independent films and many cult classics apart from other genres. So I think Bianca and I would argue and agree that aesthetics help to define what we are talking about today and help put these films into their own box. However, 
There is some debate about the aesthetics of it all, because truly anything can be a cult film, from Mamma Mia to Tremors, what have you, whatever you like. Tremors. You're obsessed oh, in. Tremors is such a good one. I could totally watch that this week. Freaking love Tremors. Oh, that's a good one. Reba? Her most iconic Reba. role? Uh, <laughs> I'm a survivor. She fucking shot that thing in the face. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, so a scholar I found, Michael J. Coven, challenges the aesthetics of cult film, saying, to be a cult film, the film must have a particular kind of audience who display a particular kind of behavior, behavior which is often ritualistic. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is an archetypal example of a film which, regardless of any aesthetic or formal features it may display, developed and developed solely over time, a dedicated audience following who would go to tremendous lengths to attend a screening of their worshipped film. Whole series of rituals and culture behaviors developed around that film which were passed on amongst its most dedicated followers. A cultural worship, if you will, which was passed on informally and through a variety of vernacular conduits, completely outside of a dominant or official culture. In many respects, cult films are those films which developed alternative, if not directly oppositional, experiences of the group context in which the film is screened. So part of the reason he disagrees that cult films share a particular aesthetic is also because cult films mostly today, are incorrectly labeled. Sometimes films are claimed by critics as a cult classic before it is even released to the public through marketing tactics. But it is hard to predict what the following of a film or TV show will look like or how it will take shape by the people, which is truly the action that makes a film a cult classic. However, the other factor that also lends itself well to camp and cult classic films is defamiliarization, which is the artistic technique of presenting to audiences common things in an unfamiliar or strange way so they could gain new perspectives and see the world differently. In cult films, topics heavily addressed are the body, gender, society, the family, and the human identity. The defamiliarization is what lends itself to this interesting social function, and we connect these concepts to such a strong following. The evolving history of cult films is also why there is an important social factor, because these weren't topics that could or were being addressed in the mainstream. They were too taboo. The term cult film itself was first used in the 1970s to describe the culture that surrounded underground films and midnight movies. Though cult was in common use in film analysis for decades prior to that. The term midnight movie is rooted in the practice that emerged in the 1950s of local television stations around the United States airing low-budget genre films as late-night programming, often with a host delivering ironic asides. The screening of non-mainstream pictures at midnight was aimed at building a cult film audience, encouraging repeat viewing and social interactions in what was originally a counterculture setting. The midnight movie became a more popular camp experience, in effect bringing it closer to the television form that shares its name. 
the term midnight movie is now often used in two different though related ways as synonyms of b-movie or low-budget movies reflecting the relative cheapness characteristics of late night movies both theatrically and on tv and as a synonym for cult films with the evolution of how we consume this virtual media we also have to take into consideration the public setting versus the private setting in which alters the cult experience. Taking these midnight movies into consideration, the fact now that we can watch a film or TV show mostly anytime we want changes how people interact with one another in their cult. Because part of the reason I think why people band together in these fandoms or a fandom-like way was to be able to worship and analyze and connect with other people about less accessible or underground content. Connecting with people in your cult takes shape differently these days. Maybe you're on Reddit or you're on Discord talking with people. But even with the digital conversation, that doesn't really change what the main social factor of what a cult classic is and how it's been defined historically, which is driven by a public cultural display. We still need to focus on these real-life interactions taking place, interactive or performative film screenings, film festivals, watch parties, other social events. And this is why, referring back to Michael Coven, we need to ask questions like, for whom is this a cult film? How are the cultish behaviors publicly expressed? And why this now and for these people? So the why now factor kind of got me thinking about Squid Games. I think that is a very relevant TV show that's been on all of our minds. So even though it's mainstream now and one of Netflix's most profitable shows, the director, Huang Dong-hyuk, said that this is a kind of sad story almost regarding the direction in which society is moving towards because he created the premise of this series about 10 years ago and only until now did production companies think people would connect with it or watch it so instead of it being this post-humanist experience it's this hyper fixation or critique on current culture so timing does matter the timing of these cult classic films and when they did come out does matter but it also just change the meaning and the presence of the work in its inception and after. So Squid Games is super mainstream, but social followings are taking place in real life and through social media, and in real life social happenings are also being produced by the production companies too for marketing purposes, which I think is fascinating that I think now more than ever we have to question what is a cult film because these production companies are aware of it and they create those social happenings for us too in these super mainstream ways in public forums. So time is what will reveal to us what is truly a cult classic and and what is not. That's a wildly fascinating, as we like to say, concept. This idea of a curated cult following I think that would be something really interesting to look further into and um, maybe we could next month do a squid games episode if we learn a little bit more about the show or more people have time to watch it I have not started it yet so I'm looking forward to doing that but I finished it in two days it was very good and I have a lot of thoughts then we should do it maybe we should do it for November yeah it's it's fantastic it's so interesting I'm I'm definitely excited to watch all of the people in my life have already finished it, and I'm, like, watching Drag Race All-Stars. <laughs> That's literally <laughs> all I'm doing. It's a, a bit different, you a know. Bit, a it, bit, It's 
it's you know a game in different ways (laughs) one is more positive than the other (laughs) so after that recap of cult Obviously, you mentioned Rocky Horror, but what other Halloween films do you think have that cult following, and why does this take shape specifically for this holiday season? Yeah, so Halloween lends itself well to the social aspects of cult classics, the dressing up of it all, the fandom of it all, but also horror is used to discuss social and body politics, and generally horror is a genre that is also done on a lower budget, Mm. and that low budget production quality is also seen as more artistic and is celebrated amongst horror lovers, and I think that also just has to do a lot with that cult classic like production nostalgia Mm -hmm. that we'll get into here in a sec also the campiness and the ridiculousness is also i think something that is celebrated and because horror can be linked to a season we keep coming back to these works of films at least once a year because the holiday does give us that reason to kind of like keep it going and keep it alive Mm -hmm. So a couple different movies that I did research about was Plan 9 from Outer Space, and this was done in 1957. And the film's storyline concerns extraterrestrials who seek to stop humanity from creating a doomsday weapon that could destroy the universe. And this movie was a turning point into really helping to define cult classics Also, like, in terms of aesthetic, because it was one of those things that was so bad, it was so good, and it morphed into this cultural icon. Also, at this point, the movie's following was defined by the community that wanted to celebrate its schlock, which is a Yiddish word meaning cheap or inferior goods or material basically trash so this movie was fucking trash and people were living for it and so plan nine is a testament to really making something out of nothing and i kept seeing that quote pop up in in multiple different places Mm -hmm. and also the director's name i think is wood something and from other prior films or if he had like stock images or film of something he would also just throw it into this movie so it was almost this like like just random like collage Mm. moment Mm. of of Mm -hmm. film and, and images that i think he kind of spliced together i've not seen this movie either I think regarding the film storyline, which concerns that extraterrestrial people that um, or beings, it's interesting to see something progress like Rocky Horror, where that's what I think of as these oh, crazy yeah. extraterrestrial, you know, like sex aliens and um, <laughs> like kind of comparing those two cult classics, like how it started versus how's it going mm-hmm. type situation. There's also a film, Alice Sweet Alice, which has Brooke Shields in it, I believe, which gained a cult following like a long time, like years after its release, kind of like Jennifer's Body, and is considered a contemporary classic of a slasher subgenre in critical circles. It has also been the focus of a study in horror, particularly regarding its depiction of Roman Catholicism, child emotional neglect, and the disintegration of American nuclear families. And in regards to just some of the images that I looked up about this movie, also another one I haven't seen, the villain in it wears this 
yellow raincoat and a very campy, creepy-like mask. Mm. Um, And it has some of those film qualities, this kind of more low-budget aspect that we've talked about as well. Mm. So those two films, some kind of classics examples that I've found that meet these historical descriptions. Yeah, I have to check that out. I want to check out the Planet Plan 9. That sounds cool. I'm going to look it up. Um, so on that note, let's think a little bit about that edition of camp. As we talked about last week, there are elements of the holiday that include laughter alongside its scares. So campy Halloween classics are often good for a laugh, even if there is some tension, this like sense of the uncanny, creepy elements, and then even some scary scenes that make us look away and close our eyes and hide under the blanket like I did watching Jennifer's body (laughs) so you know at least for the people like myself and Gianna the the true scaredy cats can find something scary even in something that's you know campy Um, some articles cite that camp classics include Sleepwalkers, Teen Witch, Scream, Evil Dead, uh, definitely throw in Adam's Family, Shaun of the Dead, um, Tucker and Dale versus Evil, and then of course Young Frankenstein. I love Young Frankenstein. I cannot wait to watch that. Um, and then as Gianna and I mentioned, the famed Rocky Horror. So what exactly makes these movies campy though? Because I think when I was looking up like just generally campy Halloween movies or campy horror movies, it's like everything is like looped into this concept of camp. Um, So if you paid attention in the spring of 2019, uh, camp received quite a wide resurgence in common colloquialism. The Met Gala sparked this very large conversation in the mainstream public about what camp is. So For a quick recap, let's go back in time and think about this term's definition. In 1964, Susan Sontag defined camp as an aesthetic, quote, sensibility that is plain to see but hard for most of us to explain, an international over-the-topness, a slightly or extremely off quality, bad taste as a vehicle for good art. Notes on camp, her 58-point listicle, quote, builds upon that inherent sense of something being too much and also fences it in. Camp is artificial, passionate, serious. Camp is Art Nouveau objects, Greta Garbo, Warner Brothers musicals, and Mae West. It is not premeditated, except when it is extremely premeditated. A New York Times article reads that, quote, her list of camp do's and don'ts has grown since it was first published. Some, including the filmmaker Bruce LaBruce, have updated and expanded it to include references as categorically specific things like Twilight, which is very bad straight camp, and then Sarah Palin, who's part of the conservative camp. However, still Sontag's, you know, article list remains the top cited amongst like any attempt to define this like very broad concept, kind of like kitsch. This Times article also gives like a a long list of examples that can tie things to camp like is it or is it not camp um and some of these items that were listed in relation to horror um were villanelle the assassin featured in killing eve Ooh, i love villanelle um and then of course the tv show riverdale which is like very spooky it kind of has this retro glam aesthetic um 
And one writer from the Washington Post actually talked in her article about um, how last October, which was AKA October 2020, there were so many real life horrors that were kind of surpassing things we might usually turn to on screen or in light of the Halloween horror season, like our real life in October of 2020 was extremely traumatic, that there was this kind of um, search for funny or campy Halloween movies during that time. So like last year, they were in that article, they were talking about Hubie Halloween, which I don't know if I would consider campy, but there was this like massive search for a kind of like lift of the usual Halloween horror. In Siobhan Chapman's article, quote, The Camp and Cult of the Rocky Horror Picture Show is a great article, very fitting. She writes that, quote, even some seasoned viewers have trouble articulating exactly what occurs in this film. First, because it is intentionally over the top and humorously complicated. And second, because the atmosphere surrounding the movie's showings is more important than the movie itself. So, Rocky Horror was loosely based on horror B-movies of the time and earlier, like Gianna was talking about. And the creator, Richard O'Brien, is a lover of intentionally over-the-top, like corny, not very coherent kind of subject matter. And that may seem obvious to people who love and you know watch Rocky Horror all the time, but if you're a first-time watcher, maybe like Theban is, you're going to be like, what is happening here? So the Rocky Horror Show first premiered as a play in 1973. And as Gianna was saying, it was originally underground, but quickly gained popularity because of a few important historical factors. So in July of 1967, less than 10 years before the play's initiation, England and Wales decriminalized homosexuality. And then about a year later, the Theaters Act abolished censorship and then changed UK theater because of that censorship law. There's a book by Dave Thompson, the Rocky Horror Picture Show FAQ, Everything Left to Know About the Campy Cult Classic. And the author goes in depth about these historical events and then details a lot of specifics about the history of this film and the play. In the book... Thompson explains that changing censorship laws was a huge deal because basically if a playwright wanted to talk about anything taboo, like aka anything queer related at that time, then they could hint at it. And then there were like little traits of different characters in the hope that an audience would understand that this was like something queer. The author says that this is why British humor is like traditionally very tongue in cheek because it initially had to be. And so relaxing those censorship laws allowed creators to take more liberties than they had before. So then when we get Rocky Horror, it is like this like untamed, like unleashed version of all of these things that used to have to be censored. So when O'Brien produced the Rocky Horror Show as a movie in the US, the subject matter obviously was very outlandish compared to anything that came out at the time. And then most of the audiences who were going to see it, therefore, were not receptive to it at all. Ticket sales were very low when it played. Um, There's a critic, Robert Ebert, who notes, quote, 
when the film was first released in 1975, it was ignored by pretty much everyone, including future fanatics who would eventually count the hundreds of times they'd seen it. Part of the reason that the musical attracted so much attention was because queer people were finally represented as a main character of a production that in, you know, Dr. Frankenberger is so clear about who he is. I mean, he, when you first meet him, he sings a song about exactly who he is. So that openness led to this group of dedicated fans. And that is the main factor and what made Rocky Horror so culty. And that cult tradition also began with callouts and shadow casts. And then after the picture was released as a midnight showing, people began, you know, responding to the lines in the movies with their own, you know, kind of insults. And it became interactive. They, you know, had pop culture references. They made jokes. So this fan base got built up and then they began to perform along with the characters and led like many of the different kind of interactive qualities that we now can go see today. So I want to think about that line, too, that I quoted back in the beginning of this. Even some seasoned viewers have trouble articulating exactly what occurs in this film. First, because it is intentionally over-the-top and humorously complicated. And then the second, because the atmosphere surrounding the movie's showings is more important than the movie itself. And so, Gian, I want to ask, has this led to the campiness of Halloween movies in tandem with Halloween traditions? I mean, there's that freedom when you go see Rocky Horror in a play or a film screening today where you have that freedom to dress up. You have that that freedom to play into the camp yourself. And, and I love that line about the, the atmosphere surrounding the showings is more important and has led to both cult and camp of these different productions. Yes, I 100% agree. And this conversation is just getting so juicy. I'm obsessed with it. What is so interesting about the quote that you picked out and you just quoted that the atmosphere surrounding the movie showing is more important than the movie itself is exactly what Michael Coven, my scholar, is addressing as well. So they would agree. But what's funny is I think there's a maybe a missing aspect to his analysis And it's that when we have reached a certain point, though, that is where the campiness is. And that is what has affected the genre of horror so much. And Mm. that is what has affected the cult movie so much. So maybe that's an argument, I think, when first, you know, cult movies arrived and we have this foundation that Plan 9 is setting and all these other different movies about, you know, using maybe like accidental camp you Mm -hmm. know what I mean like unintentional camp and then Mm -hmm. it turning into this whole other thing Mm -hmm. so I wholeheartedly agree and you know some of the basically where I got this scholar Coven's analysis for analysis from was from a set of given questions that he was asked to analyze so it's interesting because obviously this is an evolving topic and Mm -hmm. at what point in time is this true and I agree with but how is that affecting the now? Right. So I think now is a good time for a little break. And when we come back, we'll be talking all about Jennifer's body.
All right, everybody, welcome back. We are going to get into a Jennifer's Body recap. And, uh, you know, not everybody may need a recap because I'm sure most of you are fully up to date and like very coherent about the significance of Jennifer's Body. But Gianna and I have been told to watch this movie for years by our friends. And I think they'd be proud of us to know that <laughs> it finally happened. So, yeah, I watched Jennifer's Body over the weekend and uh yes i did have to look away at certain parts because i was too scared of the very attractive megan fox like ripping people apart um maybe because she's too beautiful i can't look at her um so i'll give a, a quick description of the film for any of those people left in the world who haven't seen it <laughs> we might be the last two so we we truly might be <laughs> Jennifer is a beautiful it girl played by Megan Fox and in the movie she gets possessed by a demon. Now her best friend is Needy played by Amanda Seyfried and originally in the course you know the movie starts and they're very close friends and then they fall apart obviously as Jennifer becomes a demon and starts killing people. Um, So Jennifer becomes this killing monster, but mostly for guys, um, even including Needy's boyfriend, Chip. So when Needy confides in Chip that Jennifer is evil, she has to clarify, no, she's actually evil, not high school evil. Although Jennifer can be very scary and intimidating, she often crosses the line into this over-the-top kind of camp territory. Um... So when Needy confronts Jennifer, telling her that she's killing people, Jennifer, um, actually, I saw this in the trailer. Jennifer says she's not killing people, she's killing boys. But for some reason, I don't remember that playing, that line playing out in the bedroom scene whenever they're talking. But it is in the trailer. I don't know. That was weird. Maybe that's just me and I missed something. But so that's that's basically the plot of the movie. Jennifer kills three boys over the course of the movie. Um, after she's she's possessed by this demon, there's a band that's like very like the band was so good, honestly. Like this like Fall Out Boy kind of Panic at the Disco, My Chemical Romance type band that actually is the the reason that Jennifer ends up getting possessed, which we'll we'll talk about in the context of the virgin aspect and things like that so Gianna do you want to tell me your your initial thoughts I guess after finally watching it after all this time yeah well it was really interesting to me that Megan Fox Jennifer the whole thing started because she gets fucking sacrificed and she gets murdered she gets stabbed to death and then um this band like super douchebag vibes of a band i think low shoulder is what, is what they're called right i don't I know they all have like moon tattoos like a bunch of fucking losers <laughs> um but they are kind of pinpointing these girls in the crowd and they start talking about jennifer and how oh yeah i know small town girls like her like she's always talking a big game but she's actually a virgin, so we're going to go after her. And then the whole freaking bar just engulfs in flames, probably due to some kind of magic or whatever that the band stirred up. It just, the whole bar is up in flames, like everybody catches on fire. And then 
it almost feels like Megan Fox is in some kind of trance or I don't know, or maybe she just like really wants to hook up with this band guy. But the- no, it's it's almost like she's been I was equating it to kind of like she's been, you know, put in this trance by this like devil kind of dark magic that the band has because yeah. they, they've made like a deal with the devil is basically my understanding or or you know. But it's interesting that that's kind of like a euphemism, I thought, for being roofied, like girls being roofied out well, of yeah. because he gives yeah. her that drink. And so it's just, I don't know, that's just a, a wild place that oh, maybe that's... women would only recognize. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's super weird because Amanda Seyfried is like, we got to get out of here. And she's like, no, I want to go in your super cool van. <laughs> and it's like, what's happening? But yeah, and the way that things kind of slow down and she's her facial expression has this insinuation that like she's very like hooked on him like something is Mm -hmm. up and she feels like very enticed to go in this van and then when she gets in the van later on she's telling amanda seyfried what actually happened right and she tells a story about how you know they sacrificed her because they thought she was a virgin and she told them she was a virgin thinking that would help her get out of the situation. And because she wasn't actually a virgin, this little ritual to sacrifice a virgin didn't work. And instead a demon like took over Jennifer's body. Mm -hmm. When I was looking up things about the movie, or I think why, I guess you could say it flopped in the beginning, had to do so much with the advertisement about it, which I thought was was super interesting and having that only been my prior experience and I remember like when this movie came out and didn't see it it felt like okay this is Megan Fox like post Transformers like we're all gonna get a chance to see Megan Fox naked like that was the hook and that's what these articles also kind of suggest that it was interesting because we had all this fandom about like monsters that we were into like Mm -hmm. the Twilight series and how this was possibly trying to be equated to like a monster like sexual like fetish but for Mm -hmm. guys but more so just like a chance to see Megan Fox naked and the marketing and I was looking at past trailers really like just really alluded to you know the sexualization of Megan Fox and like not much else about the plot and so then of course getting eaten by a monster really isn't a guy's super sexual fantasy or I guess maybe if you want to get eaten by Megan Fox like you do you but these like associations about like the movie and how it was being marketed was kind of not like false to what the movie was but there was a lot more to it obviously and so it was the marketing of it all was also I don't know a cause of 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 why it flopped, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, so I read that the director actually clashed with, I think it's Fox, who was the main producer um, of the of the film, and actually clashed with um, marketing and production at the company because the producer, obviously, the, was the director of Juno. They had had an Academy Award, stuff like that. Um, and even on the marketing, on the poster, you see, you know, director, Academy Award winner of Juno is now directing this, like, weird Megan Fox thing. But 
it's so overshadowed by this sex sexualization of the main character. Um, and then I'll, I'll read a quote from her article. Um, the film has appeared on best of lists of horror films directed by women as well as LGBTQ horror movies. The film deserves to be on the list because it is an excellent B-movie that mixes humor and horror in a way that is funny yet provocative. However, the world of 2009 was not ready for a horror comedy that was made by a woman for teen girls, especially one that included queer themes as well as feminist messages. That suits the now Me Too era better than it does an era when top films were directed by men and most films made for women were restricted to the romance genre. So this is something that we've also talked about um, in last year's Halloween episodes where we talked about monster theory and we talked about monstrous sexuality and the vagina dentata. And I think that even though Megan Fox is kind of ripping people apart, you know, with her, her teeth, like her mouth kind of expands, she's obviously possessed by a certain devil or you know evil spirit of sorts she's not she doesn't have a vagina dentata like we talked about last year but she has that idea of like sexual monstrous teeth um and they kind of see that when her when her mouth is kind of stretched out in different ways but she also lures men in with that promise of kind of sexuality um so i think that that's another interesting aspect about kind of like reclaiming your body in a in a in a strange way but yet it it definitely is on par with those feminist messages about monstrosity Mm -hmm. there was a like a joking moment at the end of the movie where needy is um you know trying to kill jennifer and Mm -hmm. i think they're in the pool scene and she had just like sucked the life out of her boyfriend (laughs) and then she was saying something like I go both ways Jennifer was saying oh I will kill you too it's just that I choose not to and perhaps like it's easier for me to kill people like in this way because I can allure boys so clearly like she could go up to anybody and just kind of kill them in a, a whatever way she likes but seducing people and seducing boys that is the best way for her to be alone with them and to like eat their bodies well i i don't know i might disagree because in that line needy says you know i thought you only killed boys and she goes i go both ways which is obviously evocative of kind of this bi identity um but i think that i don't know in comparison to the kind of like makeout scene that amanda seyford and megan fox have in that bedroom like i i think that there is a chance that megan could have killed needy if she if needy or chip hadn't have you know stabbed uh jennifer and she you know like flew out the window or whatever oh yeah no for sure i mean like she can seduce people but it's like the seduction like Mm -hmm. that is how she's choosing to kill people is like through her sexuality like yeah yeah, she definitely could have killed needy and yeah she did make the comment she goes both ways but but i think there's also speaking of that maybe we'll transition into that idea of like this is a movie for teen girls it is about the high school experience and then of course there's that iconic line where um needy says no jennifer's evil she's not just high school evil and i think that even as i was watching it i mean it really is evocative of uh, i don't know i think it's one of the truest kind of depictions of a high school female friendship type of relationship that i've really seen in a movie especially from 2009 Mm -hmm. i mean i think that 
of course, you know, we have mean girls. We have this idea of of the it girl and that struggling friendship, kind of the loser girl and stuff like that. But Needy and Jennifer are friends who appear to like be on different levels. I mean, obviously Amanda Seyfried is stunning, but in this movie they make her out to be kind of like the lesser beauty of of you know this friendship dynamic. And I think that. I think that every girl can so relate to that. You know, every person can relate to that. But I think for a 2009 movie, actually depicting that type of friendship, that betrayal, I mean, spoiler alert for (laughs) anyone out there. But, you know, with Jennifer killing Needy's boyfriend, I mean, that's such kind of like a a backstabby type of move that you might see in a different movie like Mean Girls or something like that. But you're seeing it in this, like, exaggerated very campy context you know right and and they do talk about that she could have gone for anybody else she could have seduced any other person but no she had to seduce needy's boyfriend and it's crazy that they're having that conversation because needy is confronted with an actual like devil spirit and she's like you stole my boyfriend yeah (laughs) like literally megan fox is an evil spirit about to kill her and she's like you could have had anyone else you know but then the same thing is said needy amanda seyfried knows that jennifer is evil while they're making out but it's it's this interesting because it still is it is Jennifer, and it's, and it's not Jennifer. I mean, she still has her personality traits. Like, she's still her person. She's got just got this new fun trait where, you know, she just eats people on the DL. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the last big thing that I want to talk about is this idea of the film being very sex positive and that aspect of virginity that leads to the backlash of, obviously, in the end, needy killing the band members who who really are responsible for for the death of Jennifer. Um, That was kind of a twist. I mean, I guess I saw it coming. Like, I predicted that that's what happened to Jennifer, is that, you know, she she really wasn't a virgin, and this is how she became possessed. But I don't know, Gianna, what do you think about that that plot point of the movie? Because really the whole plot, I guess, could you could say is centered around the fact that Megan Fox has to lie about her virginity what she thinks is in order to save her life yeah I think it's interesting that in a way because she's not a virgin that's how she's able to come back and have this new power I mean Mm -hmm. it's definitely an evil power and she didn't really have any choice in the matter of all Mm -hmm. of it but that aspect is interesting it's not that oh she's not a virgin and the spell didn't work it's that it bounced back in this in this other way mm-hmm. um so i did find that interesting also i mean they also show you know needy's sexual experience with her mm-hmm. boyfriend and that yeah. was also the moment like she was supposed to lose her virginity mm-hmm. and how when she was having sex with her boyfriend she had this like inner connection moment with jennifer and she could i don't know prophesize or see all these other things that jennifer was doing like through her sexual encounter Mm -hmm. um and being linked to jennifer in that way so that was kind of interesting um so yeah again i and i know that we just talked about this but it's interesting that it became very that this movie was very sex positive or at least it just talked about sex in like a non-oppressive way when yeah. in fact 
the movie was marketed to be just a sexualization of Megan Fox. Like, that's how it was marketed. That's how it felt it was supposed to exist. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. Yeah, and also one other thing that I just wanted to add before I forget is, um, I don't know, because of this, there's also this idea that Megan or Jennifer can't, like, when when Amanda Seyfried ends up actually stabbing Jennifer, there's no hope for Jennifer's body to live on. It yeah. is it is that the the evil spirit within her has has left. She's killed the demon, but she's also killed Jennifer's body. So I think that this idea that needy takes on the responsibility of of um repercussions for the band members is also interesting because mm-hmm. although it was it was Jennifer's body possessed by the spirit that killed Chip I mean there was part there's like some sense of Jennifer that was still there that's still that friendship dynamic but yet yeah. needy still takes on this kind of quest for um, for justice for Jennifer in a way mm-hmm. with with killing the band members at the end right because in reality like Jennifer died a long time ago like she died right at that they murdered her vortexy looking waterfall thing right what did they call that like Hell's devil's Mount? kettle devil's because that's a town name devil kettle De- devil's kettle <laughs> <laughs> was the town and then it was named it after was the be- waterfall because of the water fountain. Right, right, right. I will say in the beginning, like before Theban fell asleep, he was like, just put a tracking device down there. Like, is it real? Like, it's not that hard. Like, why are you throwing balls down the hole? Like, just throw a tracking device down there. Like, God. And I was like, wow, you've cracked it. This is the plot hole. And we're about five <laughs> seconds into it. No, even when I saw that they were throwing those, like, it looked like those squishy, like, foam balls. I was like, that's yeah. so bad for the environment. Like, I know. <laughs> that thought, like, I was like, what the hell are you doing? You're, like, polluting. What the fuck? But then she found them at the end of the movie. Right. Amanda Which Seyfried is good found the little Nerf balls. But... Um, um, but speaking of the end, when she does go on this quest for Jennifer, who was her friend, like in a really shitty thing happened to her, yeah. even though she was like kind of a shitty friend and she kills all the band members, the photo montage thing at the end, I thought was very camp and, uh, and it had this like good, like nostalgia moment to it with all these like glammed up like rocker dudes in their like Vegas hotel room Mm -hmm. and then in these like perfectly posed kind of like crime scene of photos I just thought was really good yeah and the -the over-the-topness of the band in general I mean all of a sudden they've skyrocketed to fame you know they got they got what they wanted I guess out of this deal but you see them like doing coke in the bathroom and all this stuff it's like so it's so weird but you're right in that fact that it is so extremely exaggerated <laughs> what these like yeah and <laughs> and like the douchiness of these guys were so exaggerated and yeah. when they were what song were they singing when they killed jennifer like forest through the trees is the is the theme song for the town then no but when they were like literally stabbing her they were singing a song it was it wasn't oh, like remember. it wasn't stacy's mom but it was something like oh. that fuck I've got your Jenny. Jenny, I've got your Jenny number. number. Yeah, yeah. Eight, six, like, seven, five, three, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And I'm just like, holy shit, like they're just stabbing this person alive. But right. eight, six, seven, five, three, all nine. <laughs> <laughs> so any other thoughts about Jennifer's body before we wrap up this culty campy episode? You know, I'm I'm glad that I liked it. I I really am. Like you said, I've had my old roommate, her favorite movie was Jennifer's Body, and I would catch her just like watching it all the time. (laughs) I never watched it with her. (laughs) So I'm um I I am glad that I watched it. And if anybody wants to watch it and they don't have it, it's on uh IMDB TV right now. Yeah, for free. So Well, thanks to all the friends who pushed us into this and told us about Jennifer's body because, you know, it's taught me a lot. And as we'll get into throughout the course of Art Louis, um, yeah, that appreciation for horror, it just grows every time I watch a new movie. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, did we do right. it? We did it. We did it. Don't forget that you can follow us at all the different platforms at Art Pop Talk. Uh, you can email us at artpoptalk at gmail.com. Donate to our Buy Me a Coffee account if you like this content and want us to keep it up. And sign up for our newsletter at artpoptalk.com. So with that, we will talk to you on Tuesday. Bye, everyone. Bye. Art Pop Talk's executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci-Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner, and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond. 